0: All right, go ahead, do the start the recording. Give me the, th- okay. She gave me the thumbs up, we're recording. Hello, welcome class to the Friday panel. I'm so excited um, to continue this conversation that we're having about the book of Genesis, and in particular about the first couple of words in the creed, <laughs> namely, I believe. That's where we, that's where we are uh, right now. I'm sitting on my pen, okay, that's, um, I believe. What is belief? What is an I? <laughs> what does it mean to be a human being? I brought three very special guests in here, people that I I all know personally in some way. Um, I'm really happy to have them. I'll start on my right here. Dr. Isaac Choi is assistant professor of philosophy. He's a professor in the honors program here. He has a PhD from the University of Notre Dame, ever heard of it? Has an MDiv from Princeton Theological Seminary, ever heard of Princeton? Has an undergraduate from Harvard College, ever heard of it? So this is an action-packed scholar here. Dr. Choi, we're so glad to have you here with us.
1: Glad to be here. Yes.
0: Here immediately on my left, Dr. Ross McCullough, um, PhD, Yale. Ever heard of Yale? I mean, this is amazing! I can't believe we have these smart people here uh, doing this kind of stuff with us. MA um, um, from Notre Dame, BA from Swarthmore College. Also a philosopher, also a theologian, um, also a professor in the honors program. Ross, I'm so happy that you came here to do this. Thank you. I know that the honors people are super busy, but I just kind of tried to t- force them to come. Finally, down here on the left, na- last but not least, somebody who actually helped welcome me to this university in a really special way when I came here, because she's a longtime faculty member at George Fox, um, Dr. Christina Kayes in the psychology department, um, and, and Dr. Kayes has actually did her undergraduate here at GFU, sat in your seat, not actually because this building didn't exist at that time. That's not true. Yes, that's not true, okay. I did sleep there. Oh, you did? Oh, I mean, I <laughs> Um, Dr. Kays was the 2011 Undergraduate Teacher of the Year at George Fox University and has connected with students in really special ways and with me in special ways as, as a mentor figure. And so I appreciate Dr. Kays. Thank you so much My pleasure for being here. Okay, this is great. Where to start? We have so many topics that, that could be discussed, so much that could be said. I guess I want to start, I don't know, why don't I start over here with Dr. Choi. Just, you're a philosopher, but also a theologian, a Christian philosopher. How do philosophers think about the question, "What is a human being? Is that something philosophers even talk about? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> Go on and on a little bit about that.
1: Uh, I mean, there's so many different views on what human beings are, right I mean clearly, um, through the history of philosophy, uh, the majority tradition was that we were some kind of combination of body and soul, right mm-hmm. that our minds we're somewhere in that mix between body and soul. So
0: there was an assumption that we had a soul. Yes, yes. We had a soul. We, we know we have bodies, but yeah. souls, it was there. We couldn't see it maybe, but they knew they thought it was true. Yes. It yeah.
1: th- had some kinship to, to God, right? And so th- the, the image of God that was often um, referenced to in this regard, that that at least part of the image of God was your soul, or, or part of your soul, or some aspect of see. your soul in your mind. Uh, but in more contemporary times, obviously, philosophers have, um, and obviously scientists, have Some of them, at least, have shifted to a much more materialistic view of the person—that we are just collections of atoms, uh, and that there is no soul, and that our minds are just brains.
0: Can I jump in here? I mean, why? What happened to the soul? Like, did did philosophers just kind of come in and say, "Well, we can't see a soul, we can't touch a soul. There's probably no God, therefore."
1: I mean, all these things, right? There's these problematic interactions. How does a soul interact with physical bodies, right? how c- how do we have these relationships between the two? And then, you know, with the rise of atheism and agnosticism, they said, well, if there isn't a clear example of a soul out there, then maybe we don't have souls either, right? And right. so there's a certain kind of, you lose God, you lose the image of God, you know, we're just, you know, really advanced apes, right? So there's, there's a certain kind of, um, all that kind of cultural progression has mm-hmm. influenced how philosophers think of the person as well.
0: Yeah, Ross, could I kick it over to you, to Dr. McCullough, also, also a philosopher, theologian. I mean, is this, is this true that philosophers just kind of were like, we used to have souls, now we don't, or we never did, you know, maybe, and really it's it's just, it's just bodies? Does philosophy have nothing more to offer secular philosophy on the meaning of a human? What would you say yeah, in response to this?
2: So, There's two things. One, there's, there's still a kind of worry within philosophical ethics that if we are just material, we're just apes, basically, then how do you make sense of all the ways in which we want, we seem to be responsible to other persons in a way that we aren't to animals and that's a that's a concern that uh, philosophers take seriously and there's a there's a real divide between the kind of understanding of the human person and the understanding of the ethical implications of, wha- of what a human person is and there's not really a good way of squaring that mm. um except for people who still hold onto a soul and then you have an image right. of god and then you can sort of make sense right. of these things
0: now can i follow up with this though in the book of genesis People are created, male and female, in the image of God. You've got that image of God maybe as some language, but there's no reference to a soul there. H- h- how have theologians gotten this idea of people having a soul, even from the book of Genesis? Or is it something that kind of comes later? Like, how does that work?
2: Well, so there is a, uh, part of the question here is how you, how you take the language of Genesis, of course. But um, there is this sense that there's something special about the human person above and beyond. The animal creation, right? It's Mm -hmm. not just good; it's very good. It's not on the same day; it has its own day. Uh, And then you have the special language, image of likeness, that doesn't get applied to to other animals. So it seems like whatever it is about humanity, it's not just similar in kind; Mm -hmm. uh, it's actually a, a different, a different kind of quality to human beings. Not just a difference in quantity, the way that. You know, a, a dog might be different from a tree because they're on right. different days of creation. Right. So there is this kind of uh, di- difference in kind, and then you have to start to explain what it is. Because if we aren't, if we don't have souls, then it doesn't seem like there is a difference in kind. We're just, you know, we're just slightly right. more intelligent apes. In the way that apes are slightly more intelligent, uh, whatever it is that <laughs> was before apes. <laughs> yeah, maybe you know, Chris.
0: <laughs> Dr. Choi, do you want to weigh in on this? Like, yeah, what? Uh,
1: absolutely. I think, um, uh, in addition to what Dr. McCullough was talking about, um, in Genesis two. Mm. in the second creation account um, there's this special portion where it says you know God formed the man from the dust of the ground and then breathed into him the breath of life
0: yeah I was just looking at this Genesis 2:7 breathed in so you've yes, got a yes, breath
1: right so so oftentimes in throughout the Hebrew scriptures there's this kind of um, the word for breath um, is oftentimes used also for the spirit of God right so there's this kind of um, this connection with regard to the meaning of of breath and breathing. And it's it's only after God breathes into this, this humanoid figure made of dust, the breath of life, that it says he became a living being, right? Right. So there's a certain kind of specialness that he does to human creation that he doesn't do to any of the other animals, right? Right. Um, and then the other thing that I would raise is um, there there's these mentions throughout Genesis, and maybe you notice this, of how, like, um, there's this, I don't know how it's translated in your, in your NIV 2011 text, but um, there's this Hebrew word sheol, yeah. which um, uh, when um, was it Joseph? When he's like Lord of Egypt, he keeps one of the, I think it's Simeon, right? Yeah. Um, when he's trying to test them, right? Um, and then when they go back to um, their father Jacob, they he's yeah, like, yeah. Uh, I'm not going to let Benjamin go with you. Right, right. Um, because, uh, um, you know, you know, I'll go, I'll bring yeah, my yeah. head, you'll bring my head down to Sheol. And Do you and all remember he- this story? You remember Did you that? read
0: Genesis when Joseph and the brothers are there and he's kind of tricking the brothers and then, and then you know, he says, Jacob says, like, don't keep my youngest son, you'll bring my gray head down to Sheol. What does it say in this text? I don't it know, maybe like death. the underworld know. or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So yeah. there's
1: this kind of shadowy underworld that is assumed that they'll go to after death, right? Mm. And so presumably if you're just matter in motion, you know, when your body dies, you're gone, right? But there's this kind of Shadowy kind of afterlife, presumably that also reflects his I belief in a soul.
0: Right? I see. That's fascinating. It also raises the point for me as, as a biblical scholar, thinking, okay, this is important about, about reading the Bible. Not everything that comes out in the later history of Christian theology is everywhere in the Bible. It's not all immediately right away. Yet still, because I'm a question asker, I still want to ask, like, hey. Hey, God, if a soul was so important, why didn't you just tell us, like, really clearly? Or even angels, which aren't said to be created. Or, you know, other things, too. You might think, why not just mention some important stuff right off the top? I want to just switch gears a little bit and go to Dr. Kays on this, on this same question, but ask you, I don't know, from your perspective as, as a psychologist, do psychologists have something that they consider to be a definition of a human? Like, what is a human for psychology?
3: Well, I think in the beginning, we saw a reaction to that idea of soul. So much of the root, b- by the way, philosophy is our foundation. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you heard of Sigmund Freud? Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was uh, part of the, the first reactionary to the church or to some of those theological components. And so there was a question that has developed out of that. But I think our current day, we look at it from a biopsychosocial and in some uh, regions of psychology spiritual frame which does bring back some potential for understanding the soul and more recently in the last 10 years there's been specific research looking for is there any brain activity specific to worship not specific Christian worship but to worship or religious practices Mm. and they actually are finding certain regions of the brain reacting very uniquely during those religious or spiritual or faith practices. Mm -hmm. So not all of anyone is going to join in. But yes, I see in psychology, there's more room for understanding what we call it, soul, spirit, those things, and that's up for grabs still, but you certainly see that. And I'm certainly part of uh, a core of individuals that see plenty of room for soul, spirit, biology, Uh, mind understanding and then just our social context because I don't know if you've noticed, but you're not uh, in a vacuum. You interact with other people and your environment.
0: Yeah. I'm just going, I'm just going wacky. I'm going off the wall with this question because I know Dr. Case teaches a very popular course at this university on human sexuality. So I'm just, I'm just going for the guts on this one or other parts (laughs) as the case may be. Um, (laughs) I'm just asking. No pictures. Yeah, no pictures. (laughs) We have no images in this class. Okay, but is from your perspective as a professor uh, and someone who's been into the research and teaching a course like that, is sexuality, sexual desire, part of what it means to be a human?
3: I, I don't know that you and I have the same definitions of a number of those words. So, um, go, f- go for it. You uh, tell so, tell desire me. <laughs> is different than sexuality. So I don't know if you've noticed, but a uh, number of people have a uh, gender and parts that go along with that, and we have a lot of language that goes with that. You know, boy, girl. By the way, I know that you weren't asking me to, but I am going to be a grandma, and I know that that this is my gratuitous congratulations. By the way, um, and what's <laughs> the first question? Well, it's both because it's twins, and <laughs> uh, just just want to slip that one in there. And so Benjamin and Charlotte, I um, mean, there's there's like little images that are like and that is a boy and that is a girl on those little ultrasounds so I didn't bring those pictures I said there was no images so I'm not gonna go there but when we think about sexuality in the course that I teach we talk about it much more than intercourse or anything that relates to taking those little parts and putting them together. Uh, so, um, sorry if that was, nah, I think it's fine. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of component that, yes, desire, sexual interactions with others that are for our physical pleasure are an aspect of our human sexuality. But I think that sexuality is not in a vacuum either. Stop it. A uh, little filtering on the images that <laughs> always show up with words. So <laughs> in terms of the... Yeah, I'm thinking about
0: sex in a vacuum now. I know, I know. I What's was like, that no, mean? that's exactly. wrong. Yeah.
3: Um, so those, uh, they're like gone too. Uh, um, so okay. th- the the piece <laughs> that you're asking is, yes, yeah. it absolutely right. is a part of our identity, a part of what motivates us or repels us in certain areas of how we navigate right most right. of our life.
0: I I mean I notice as a reader of the Bible the book of Genesis is just like filled with sex. Did you not notice this? Did anybody see? I mean like Jacob and his wives or his wife and then his wife's sister and then their concubines. He kind of has like four sex partners and they're producing kids and they have a childbearing contest and so this issue of bearing children is like a major part of the book of Genesis and it kind of comes up throughout the book. So it's not a small issue as, as we start the, the journey in the Bible to think about whether human beings are Sexual in some ways or not others or what that even means, right?
3: It's also not limited to the Old Testament. I'm yep. pretty sure it's a part of our current culture,
0: right? <laughs> right? Th- yeah, right. that's right. Yeah, that's right That's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> I Often wonder okay, so you have you have Genesis chapter 3 where things go bad for people people are made in the image of God as we discussed uh, in, the I- in the Monday's lecture and it was good But then things go wrong. And then there's pain in childbearing, there's pain tilling the earth, they start having kids. One of the kids murders the other kid. I mean, things go south really quickly. I think one question that we have, maybe I'll pitch this over to Dr. Choi, is that, okay, look, if people are created good, but the world is so bad, what the heck happened? (laughs) Like, is it just like, do we just kind of say, do people of faith just kind of say, well, Adam and Eve wish they hadn't done that. I guess it's, you know. Or is there some kind of deeper explanation? In other words, why, despite the fact that we're created good, do th- are things going wrong with our bodies, with our world? What kind of response would you give to that?
1: I mean, I think that um, the Christian response has always been uh, Genesis 3, what goes yeah. on there, right? The, this act of disobedience and rebellion against God, um, that it had implications uh, both for the world as well as for uh, human beings and the lineage that would come out of Adam and Eve. And so that's, that's generally the picture. I think that there is this deeper question philosophically and theologically of what does it mean to have the freedom to actually do the wrong, right? It's not like they were presumably bad people. God didn't create them um, with bad desires. Like, but there's this deep question of the origin of sin. Where does it come from, right? Um, and we might say, well, let's push the question back to the serpent. The serpent is the one who tempted them. But then again, the question arises, well, how did the serpent become bad or (laughs) evil? Um, Why would God make a serpent that was evil, right? And so on and so forth. So there are very deep questions about freedom and the freedom to choose the wrong. Um, But I think as the way that Genesis portrays it, it's like um, Adam and Eve bear the consequences, right? Um, The ground is cursed. Um, It's a lot worse, much worse, than what they had experienced in the garden,
0: right? Dr. McCullough, I mean, here's a question though. In the Monday lecture, I pitched the idea that being made in the image of God means that people have inherent worth, like total complete value. How much was that worth or value diminished by the problems that happened in Genesis three? Was it like an almost total erasure? Was it no erasure at all? Like how would you talk about that problem?
2: Yeah, you're going to have to have some kind of um, bedrock value to human life that isn't erased at all, mm-hmm. right? That isn't changed. And so one one traditional way of do doing this in Christianity is you talk about, you make a distinction between the image and the likeness. So ah. you use two words, and uh, the Genesis uses two words for that. And one one way of reading that um, pair uh, is you say, Humanity loses th- its likeness to God, but maintains its image after mm. the fall. And then, when Christ comes and grace and restoration, you get the you get the likeness to God back. Mm. Uh, and so, that's a sense in which uh, you have this kind of bedrock worth as an image of God. And that's true for everybody, non-Christians. The worst sinner in the world still has that. But uh, but there is a, there is something kind of the, uh, kind of further uh step in that in the in the same direction in a kind of like imitation of god that you have when you're when you're restored that adam had originally and that you get when you're restored mm-hmm. but it doesn't
0: affect things like your sort of basic rights as a human being mm-hmm. your kind of basic human rights uh, from a cr- this is kind of a blunt question but from a christian perspective is it is it fair to d- hop on one side or another to answer the question does the biblical vision in genesis present people as basically good or basically bad
2: there's two senses of basically <laughs> so i'm going to be a philosopher now so yeah no do it so in one sense of basic, so I- the most basic sense of basically, <laughs> they're good. They're fundamentally good. They're created by God. That doesn't change. They're still creatures of God. Even after sin, they're still creatures of God. Hmm. Now, there's another sense of basically with something like intrinsically or inherently or congenitally, maybe something like that, mm-hmm. uh, where, they, where, they're, where they're evil, where mm-hmm. you have this original sin. That's tra- it's true for everybody, all human beings, all descendants of Adam and Eve. Um, but that's not you know that that's not essential to human beings in the sense that you you a it may you have to have it to be a human being it's not an essential property precisely because we're not going to have it eventually in the christian story by the end that's going to go away original sin is overcome maybe that happens in baptism maybe that happens in somewhere in the in, in between baptism and the final judgment but by the end of the thing you're not going to be a sinner anymore, you're going to get the likeness back, and mm. so that can't be basic to you in that sense of a s- basic as essential, it's what makes you who you are, whereas your status as a creature, um, what what in this one tradition is called the kind of image of God, is essential to you. If you lost that in sin, you would cease to be human. Hmm. You would cease to be human. It's a property that you have to have to be a human being.
0: Hmm. Dr. Kays, in psychological circles, is it is it common to just defy that Binary of people are good or bad, or, or do psychologists have a, a view of whether people are basically good or bad?
3: I, I'm cheating. Basic is the definition yeah. issue here. So there's too many individuals. I'll just at leave the out table. the word. Are people yeah, no good or bad? If, what if can't. I left out the word? You Basic, can't.
1: okay.
3: Um, so there's too many theological voices at the table, and I want to go back to so many of the voices that uh, have shaped psychology have been in reaction to. And so we have a lot of reaction to the church or church, or lots of them. And so through the development, you have people react- reacting to Christian ideology and going maybe more towards um, a Buddhist or a Hindu way of conceptualizing mankind or rejecting religion and faith and that eternal perspective altogether. And so there's not a simple answer, I think most commonly you would find today that the idea of humanistic view that there is inherent worth is fairly prominent in um, Western civilization. And that depends. um, So you're going to go to other cultures, particularly one like India, where there's a caste system, regardless of legal or not. And if you're in the right caste, you're inherently good. If you're in the wrong caste, sucks to be you. (laughs) So I think it's along those lines. Christian psychologists also don't agree on that Mm. because we have to go back to our theological roots uh, in terms of do we believe mankind is inherently good Mm. or, or, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, when I read Genesis, it just, it seems like, it seems so complicated. I mean, when I read the stories of the ancestors, like Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca and then Jacob and all these women and then Joseph and all this stuff, it's like, it's so hard to cast a singular judgment about what Genesis is exactly saying about human beings. I mean, that image of God thing seems so important at the start. Can I go back to you, Dr. Troy, and ask, if the image of God was, if something got broken, what happened to the image of God? Is it still there but hidden? Is it sort of like, what's the metaphor? Is, it, is there like a blanket thrown over it? Are we like talking through a wall?
1: What yeah, happened? I, I think, um, I don't know if it's in the same tradition that uh, Dr. Mccullough was talking about, but there's this idea of the image of God being marred right? It's like you have them, I mean, kind of yeah. connecting to the lecture, right? There's like a the mirror, but you you smear Vaseline all over it, right? It kind of still works, but it's kind of all fuzzy and, and weird, but it's still intrinsically there. It's still there below yeah. all the junk yeah. that's on it, right? Um, and I think that um, the other place that the image of God comes up is right after the flood of Noah, right? In Genesis 9, right? Yeah. Where it talks about how um, God's like saying, don't kill each other, right? This is like central command. He says, For in the image of God, um, human beings were created.
0: Right, it comes back up.
1: Yeah, and so it's kind of like, if the image of God were completely eradicated because of sin, and I mean, pre-flood, it's like the thoughts of man were like evil all the time, and in every way, it's just like the saturation of evil was there. Pretty extreme. Yeah, but he says, even still, the image of God is still there. Perhaps in a marred form, Mm -hmm. but that that value and worth um, is still there. If it weren't, it wouldn't be the basis of this prohibition against murder. Right,
0: right. Right. And ultimately, that image becomes the basis for, I mean, redemption or any of the great themes that are going to come and follow in the Bible as we get into it. I mean, if there were no image there, I guess God would just have to recreate (laughs) us into some other kind of being or something like that. Um, I want to go to a question from the gallery here, question over text. This is a tough one. This is a strange one. (laughs) Within Genesis, we become very familiar with the phrase, it was good, right? Genesis chapter 1, God creates, it was good, it was good. When humanity was created, God said that it was good, but he is all-knowing. Does Genesis say that God is all-knowing? Well, we'll get, that's part of the question, maybe. So he knew that humanity would fall prey to sin. Does God have a different definition of good than we do? What makes a human being bad or good? So par- partly the latter part of that question was, you know, overlapping with what we've been talking about. Are humans bad or good? But what about this question of God's foreknowledge? Does God create humanity already knowing that they're going to have this problem? And if so, are we just actors in God's charade? Or something like that. I don't know. Dr. McCullough, do you want to take a shot at that one? That's a tough one. (laughs) (laughs) The mic is raised slowly (laughs) to the mouth. (laughs) So I do think God has foreknowledge
2: of these things. Um, God is all-knowing in that sense. Not just knows everything that's true at the present, but also knows things about the future. Um, God knows that uh, human beings will sin. I don't think that uh, the statement that it was very good um, implies that it it will all go well for human <laughs> beings <laughs> uh, it's not that's not exactly what God says there and uh, so I'm not sure that it's referring to anything about the fall or later but there is um, so there's w- there is one way of thinking about this in the Christian tradition where uh, the fall is a kind of good thing because it becomes the occasion for Christ to come and bring us to a better thing. So there is a way of reading this if you want to read it. R- uh, if you really want to think of it was good as applying to sin, too, it's, it's called the happy fault, tra- the happy <laughs> fault tradition. Is
0: this often associated with Irenaeus in the second century,
2: the Irenaeus Christian thinker? and Augustine has a oh, version Augustine of this. Augustine does too, yeah, okay. and some and, um, So
0: it has a pedigree in some early Christian thought, not yep. just something that some liberal modern person <laughs> made up to try to make Genesis seem better. I mean, Christians have talked about this. Yeah, yeah, it's a very early and very persistent theme.
2: Uh, and the idea, I mean, the basic idea is that the Christian story is not about going back to Eden. It's not about going back to the garden. It ends in something better than the garden. It ends in the city that comes down in Revelation. If you've gotten there yet, which Spoiler I don't. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, no, that's good, and that's better. That's better than how Adam started. So what Christ, this, the second Adam, which is Christ, brings something more than the first Adam brought. Mm-hmm. And so because the f- because the first Adam, the fall becomes the occasion of the second Adam coming. It's actually uh, in some way, it's a kind of good thing.
0: Yeah, go for it, Dr. Case.
3: So I'm wondering if when God says it is very good, if He's saying my handiwork is very good not what they're going to do with my handiwork now i have thrown a pot on a wheel before it didn't survive because i'm really lousy at that um but so it wasn't very good is really where i was headed there but if you have a piece that's a beautiful piece that's done well and it doesn't get used well is that part of it god made something that was very good It has the potential to be used and do good, good things. And yet it could become broken or fractured and not be able to fulfill maybe its ultimate until it gets repaired, redeemed, restored. Right. Is that a potential way that some theologians and philosophers look at it? And I don't think that's the way that psychologists look at it. That's the way Chris looked at it right now. Yeah,
0: well, it seems like, I mean, I- even in your metaphor of, of, the, of the vessel, I mean, something could be broken. It's not it's not like a pot's fault if I'm throwing a football in my house and it gets broken. <laughs> like, I'm not, you know, I didn't do, I wasn't in the garden with Adam and Eve. Like, what does what that have to do with me, you know? But then again, there are things I have done that have been just as bad or, or, or just as disobedient. I don't know. Dr. Troy, do you want to jump in on this one?
1: Uh, I just wanted to follow up on Dr. McCullough and Dr. K's uh, point um, in that I do think that Genesis does kind of teach a certain kind of omniscience, right? And and th- the passage I'm thinking about is in Genesis 50, at the very end of the book. Right? This is when uh, the brothers come to Joseph and they're like, oh, you know, please forgive us. We're so sorry for what we did to <laughs> you because they're worried that he's going to kill them now that their father's dead, right? But um, Joseph's like, don't worry about this because even though you meant it for harm, God meant it for good for the saving of many lives, right? right. And so there's this there's this kind of idea d- implicit in what Joseph's saying that God knew that this famine would come. And so he set things up in such a way and allowed this evil to happen mm-hmm. from the perspective of Joseph and his brothers right. in order to bring about this greater good. And so this is another yeah. kind of tradition yeah. in Christianity about God allows a certain amount of evil to happen in order to bring about some greater good. And, and the, 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 the happy fall kind of thing would be one christians
2: have always read the joseph story as a kind of type of christ so joseph is a kind of example of kind of sign pointing to christ later right mm-hmm.
0: right and i mean you could even look at the symbolism of joseph this is looking ahead in our story a little bit but like joseph's brothers what do they do with him they put him down in a well and then he comes back up and later he goes down into a prison and he c- so you already have this notion in genesis of like some heroic figure some salvific figure joseph saves the nation of israel did you notice that he saves them going down almost to a kind of symbolic death, but then rising again. So when we talk about something like a type or typology, we can talk about the way that the Bible actually communicates a message symbolically in many different kinds of forms. I wanna sneak in another student question if we have, either from the roving mic or from the uh, foxtail forum. Does anyone, anyone wanna shoot up a hand, they wanna ask on the mic, or should we go to the, f- to the forum? Why don't we start with the forum, and if anyone raises their hand, we can throw a mic out there. Go to Jenna, our wonderful teaching assistant here on the computer. At the com, Yeah, give her the mic so she can. All
2: right. Uh, okay. Um, one student
3: asked, it seems as if God arbitrarily chooses some people to find favor with or blessed, to choose that they're good or whatever it may be. What did these people do to earn God's blessing and the opportunity to interact with him? What is different about their belief than ours?
0: Oh, that's a big theme right there. Why does God choose some people to be the, uh, like why, why Abram? Did Abram do something? God seems to God seems to really, I mean, some people really seem to get hurt in these stories, too, right? It's not just like it's all winners. You've got some winners and some losers and some people that, it's like, what's God doing with other nations at this time, you know, too? Like, not a word is spoken. I don't know. Panel, what do you think? Does anyone want to jump in on this? Why would God choose one person to show favor upon them and not another? Listen so to the well silence. No,
2: no, no. <laughs> this is a good question. So... Uh, the ch- the choosing of Israel of Abram and then Abraham is not earned. That's a that's a fundamental uh, message. Of uh, just in Genesis too, and you and you again and again as the descendants go down, it's not the it's not the oldest child, it's the younger child.
0: It's not the one who sort of has a right to it. It's the one that God chooses. Did you notice that theme as you read Genesis? The younger would often supplant the older. In The story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob was younger, but God was like, nope, it'll be the younger. Cain and Abel. What God saw Cain's offering, said no, but Abel, the younger, yes. So there's this pat. It's a pattern. I just want to inject that.
2: Yeah, no, no, that's right. Yeah. So it's not uh, it's not ac- according to sort of our sense of who deserves it, who's earned it, who's done the most that God responds to. It's This is very much God's choice uh, and God's decision. And there is a kind of um, arbitrariness to it in that sense. Now, the question is whether that, because I, th- I take it the implication of the question and of your comments, uh, Dr. Doke, are that, well, what about the people who get cursed? Is that also an arbitrary decision? God just chooses to send, you know, right. and finally to send some people to hell maybe and send some people to heaven, uh, to send have some people suffer and others not. Um, it's I, now, my view is, is no, that that's not an arbitrary decision. That, that's based on, when it, when it really comes to curses, it's based on people's choices. So there are, there are people like Ishmael or these other peoples in the Bible who sort of, like, disappear. They don't have a story to tell. I think there, there is a story to tell about them and God's interaction with them. It's just not in the Bible. So you'd have to have a d- you'd ha- there's there are narratives there. And maybe they, uh, they can tell their story with God in a certain way. It's just, n- we d- it's just not the privileged narrative of Scripture that's setting us up for, for Christ. If that mm-hmm. makes sense, so so sort of silence here doesn't necessarily mean condemnation or whatever.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, I mean, part of the hesitation that at least I have in addressing this question is because it opens a huge can of worms about what, if anything, underlies God's choice. I think I think all Christians agree that um, Abraham didn't deserve anything. Right. Um, I think it is interesting that Noah is chosen because of his uprightness. Right. Hmm. Not necessarily that he's perfect. So there's a reason there. God yeah. saw that he was doing the right thing. There's absolutely a reason there. Yeah. But for Abraham, there's no, or Abram as he was at that point, mm-hmm. there's no indication that he was more holy or special or did. So like I, I think that there's these questions: Is it in every case like Noah, or is it that there, you know, there are cases in which it has nothing to do with them, right? Um, what even in terms of their own sins or lack thereof? I mean,
2: well, it's also—I mean—it's instructive, right? That Noah is is chosen to be saved from destruction. Yes. Abram's not chosen. It's not like the ur, ur of the Chaldeans is destroyed when Abraham's taken out of it, right? He's chosen for the special t- vocation above and beyond right, a kind colony. of normal life. But, uh, and, and that might have a kind of unearned character. But Lot, mm. Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, it's the same way, right? When Abram, I don't even remember, Abraham negotiates with God. If there's only 30 righteous people, will you save the city? If there's only 20 righteous people, will you save the city? And there's a sense that, uh, and finally God does bring the few righteous people out of the city before he destroys it. So there's a sense that, Will you aren't condemned to destruction um, in a kind yeah. of arbitrary way. It's for, it's yeah. for your sins. But so you are called right. above and beyond. J- Israel is called in a kind of arbitrary way. So what but I hear
0: you two saying is that there's a place where there's a clear ethical core. There's justice. There are reasons. It's stated. It's not just all willy-nilly. But maybe there are some other places where an initial decision like with Abram is harder yeah, to... Yeah, it's not as
1: clear. Honestly. And so, I mean, this is actually a place where Christian traditions will disagree with each other vehemently, right? Mm. Uh, especially between like Calvinists versus Arminians and Catholics and all these different views on right. what, if anything, underlies those cases where it's not so clear, like Abram, right. um, why God chose him versus right. anyone else. Right,
0: Dr. Kays, could I get you in on this and just ask, I mean, how have you grappled with this problem as an adult? Like, God, I mean, you, you must even see as a psychologist, I know you've done therapy with people too, like, you see some people's lives who just seem to be like, just like ruined in some core way that was not their fault and you think why why this versus some people seem to be set up for success I mean maybe that's an analog to the question too we don't have too much time left here maybe just a minute but can you give us anything on that front
3: I think that's been the core of the work that I've done with a number of clients is how does that work and I actually can I take it even more personal yeah totally. um, I I met and learned about jesus when i was 14. my mom already had a relationship with uh, the christian faith but i didn't get it through her i got it through other venues Mm -hmm. but my dad and my brother as far as i know are not not saying yes to that believe me this person did not warrant that as a chosen blessing Um, and i don't know why and i don't understand and so there's that what what i want and what i think makes sense has never really added up Mm. and the older i get it's making less and less sense
0: (laughs) it gets weirder Uh, as you get older it does
3: the only other part that i have that i think gives me peace is the longer that i live the more i trust that i don't understand the full story Mm. and that there's a lot of times things going on or things that can be redeemed or told from a different vantage point that will help bring um maybe peace Mm. um or clarity I I know I don't get what I deserve.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a good point to end on. But we didn't. What we didn't do, we didn't talk about this issue of belief, right? What does it mean to believe as opposed to know something? It's an issue we're going to have to kick to our next Friday, Friday panel. I know our philosophers would have had a lot to say about that. To Dr. Troy, Dr. McCullough, Dr. Case, thank you so much for sharing <laughs> with us <laughs> what you.